Hello guys, so welcome to Treebark. We have another interview and it's been quite some time and I'm very happy and excited to get back in the saddle with these. Um, so today we're joined with Nazi though, or just just Nazi, or am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah, Nazi is uh, my online handle. Okay, cool. And like, so for a little bit of background, like correct me if I'm wrong, so you're really into entomology and you have your degree in like, I guess, uh, what, what in bio, biology, dealing with... Uh, I mean, I guess the better question is, like, what what exactly is your, your degree defined as? Or, like, what is the name of your degree? Yeah. That you're a master's in? Or uh, are you working on your PhD? Well, so, it's, like, which one of my degrees? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> um, which one um, are you more focused on recently? Or That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, so right now I'm doing my PhD in uh, myrmecology and entomology. Um, nice. The way that a PhD works is it's kind of just you pick a topic um, for your dissertation and mm -hmm. then you work through it for four years and then you defend it at the end. So it's like everybody's topics kind of unique. It doesn't really have a discipline, so to speak, um, okay. like an undergraduate would. So you really have a lot of options. Like, is this similar to like um, going in with like a, your master's thesis and what you want to actually write about or uh, research? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, awesome. Um, so, wait, what was the first one you mentioned? It started with an M? Myrmecology, so that's like ants. Oh, specifically, okay, specifically ants. Um, yeah. What What's the main interest or the passion there with uh, studying specifically ants? Uh, it's kind of funny. It kind of just came onto my lap. Like, when I was in high school, I worked at the New Brunswick Museum, um, just a, a provincial museum in my home province in Canada. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that there was no ant research done in the province. And so the curator of zoology at the time was just like, oh, you should learn how to do ants. <laughs> You'll oh. learn how to identify and work with ants. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, so he sent me on this field course to study ants and how to identify them and uh, learn about them and that kind of thing. Uh, and that's just like the path that ended up getting laid out for me. Yeah. So like even from your background, um, we watched recently, uh, I think it was a video from 2017. It was kind of an, kind of an old video of yours on your YouTube channel. And it was talking about, I think when you were, yeah, about three years ago, you were, you just had your master's degree and, uh, you were describing, uh, your background since like childhood, like since you were two years old, that you were really into just nature and insects a lot. That was your, like your main interest. And then it developed into um, what your one of your biology teachers recommended that you go and research into? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, when I was really young, we grew up in an area that like we just didn't have internet or access to much electricity or anything like that. And I just spent all of my time out in the woods with my uh, dad. He's a big fisherman, and so we would go on big fishing trips, and I'd get to see all kinds of things in nature. And the things that always drew my attention were the insects. Um, and so I just like. I don't know. They supported me and they gave me books about insects. I kept caterpillars in our house and raised them into butterflies and oh, all this stuff. It's really and cool. it just, yeah, I just pursued, like I just pursued it. I just grew up in, in that and it kept going. Did you have those like little bug catcher containers that were like this mesh and like this wood thing with this little plexiglass, <laughs> like little uh, switch pa like panel? I used to have one of those as a kid. No. Oh, yeah, okay. I know exactly what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of close. The one I'm thinking of is like, you know, the way that they have it in Animal Crossing with those standard like oh, yeah. green top or whatever colored top vented mesh. Yeah. 
yeah, those are really cute, and like it's for aquariums or terrariums. Those, yeah, I remember growing up and would have a lot of those as a kid, and it would be like this little bug catching set. And we, uh, when I went out, when I went on a lot of excursions in elementary, um, we would go on these like nature walks and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they gives you these little glass uh, kind of like boxes, and then it has a magnifying glass built into it. So when you scoop up a little critter or a leaf or something, you could get a good look at it. Those are really yeah, cool. Yeah, those are my favorite. And so, I mean, by the sounds of it, so your family was already like cultivating within you like your natural interest in this, and then it just sounds like a really like fun and natural progression for what you really wanted to pursue early on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I was very lucky growing up and my dad, um, he always wanted to go into marine biology, but it turned out that the marine biology degree he wanted to do in terms of getting into like becoming a salmon fisher, Mm -hmm. it didn't work out for him. The province put in this rule that only families that own salmon fisheries could do salmon fisheries. So he did a degree in marine biology. He loves biology, but uh, it didn't work out for him. So he tried a whole bunch of different things, but he's a very academic person. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I showed that interest in biology, he was like, yeah, like I'll give you all the textbooks. Oh, nice. Well, that's really (laughs) cool. Yeah. So um, I guess like, so from like, an educator um how did you want to gravitate more into like cultivating your interest and then putting that in a practice that not only explores and you know goes into field research but wants you to um share that with people so do you have like more of a focus in wanting to teach or just kind of just share that kind of cool facts with people in general how does how do you sort of navigate and integrate that it's kind of a mix honestly like i love i just I kind of love everything that has to do with science and biology. And I mean, my, my focus is entomology, but I just, I love every, the whole process of science really. And growing up it, I mean, insects, especially they're always stigmatized. And so I would find these cool things and I would learn a lot about them and people were like, Oh no, that's gross. And so it just became my natural role in like elementary school and grade school in general to be like, okay, you might think this is gross now, but wait till I like show you how cool they are. Yeah. Um, and that's, what's really cool. Yeah. Cause like some, like, especially me as a kid, it's like, I see a cockroach or something like that. And it's like, ugh, like, I don't want to like, that's a creepy crawly or something. And then I guess you could at least defend them and you can educate us about them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I like, I always wanted to get into science itself. Um, but I quickly learned that it's important to teach people about these things because if you're, if you don't know about them, they immediately become scary and they shouldn't be scary. They're actually really awesome. Um, and so that's kind of like, as I was going through my degrees, I was learning how to do science itself, but on the side, in my personal time, I was teaching people about these things. I was helping people overcome their fears of insects and spiders and all that. Um, and then when I got into the furry fandom, it just kind of became a natural progression where I built this character and I started to identify insects for people online and that's what I got known for. And so I started dipping my toes more and more into science communication. Nice. The, for the fandom in general now, um, how, so like, how did you first hear about it? Cause I always like to ask people about like, what was their first like exposure to like seeing the fandom and like, how did you want to adopt that in your life? Or did you have any like kind of misconceptions or things about it that you're like, Oh, what is this all about? (laughs) What is well, this culture? I don't know. It's it's such a weird introduction to the fandom. I was on a website called bugguide.net 
and as one um, does it's like sorry <laughs> no no sorry as one does yes <laughs> yeah as one does <laughs> um and i was identifying insects for people on that website but then on one of the posts people had or the person had linked out um one of the images to for affinity because they had just hosted the image through for affinity so I went on for affinity. I identified the insect for them on there. And then I found out what for affinity was. And it, it was first to me, like it was cool that people had insect characters. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not like the norm in the fandom, but that's what I saw first. And I was like, that's really cool. I want to like create a character for myself that is like this anthropomorphic element. And it's a fun avatar to have online is a little, I can, you kind of keep yourself cute and anonymous which is fun <laughs> <laughs> i like that yeah um and then is, yeah is that where like did you go through like different iterations or was it first like bam i know my name nazi and how did you sort of evolve that oh that's like it's so bad because <laughs> my name was never supposed to be said like in words <laughs> oh um what ended up happening is i like i said i didn't have much access to the internet growing up mm -hmm. and when I went away for university, that was really my first big experience, like exposure to the internet. Um, I like, I got obsessed with YouTube. I watched YouTube <laughs> all the time. I was very um, self-conscious and socially anxious. So I didn't go outside very much in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, instead, I stayed inside and I like fostered this online community um, side of myself. Oh, so. And sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it sounds like the, like real quick. Yeah, it was a really nice way to introduce and like be more social through this online outlet then for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but the funny thing was when I first made my account, I just threw a string of letters and numbers that I used for any account that I had ever made. Like even at this. So in, in grade school, like I would use NASIDO as a means to create usernames on like their platforms and stuff. Oh, okay. Um, and because it was never taken, like it was a string of letters that just didn't make any sense. And so <laughs> it just was never taken. It was easy thing to use. And it just so happened that that was my username. And then all of a sudden when I got into the furry community, people started calling me that username. And I was like, no, that, that sounds weird. Why are you doing oh. that? <laughs> So you actually didn't, know, didn't have yeah. a sound associated with your username yet then? No, no, not at all. Oh, like wow. I didn't I didn't know that people used their online handles like in real life. That just didn't occur to me. So yeah, it, yeah. it was weird. And then um, people just didn't know how to say it at first, like mm -hmm. the full thing, N-A-S-I-D-O. <laughs> um, and so uh, one of my friends online just shortened it to NASI and was like, we would be in... Uh, I. MSN messenger and they would be like talking to me via voice and would say it out loud and I was like okay that sounds okay like sure you can call me that um but then it just it just stuck I guess and then uh, what was the what was the kind of melding then so you had your username and you were checking out FA and then you saw that other people had sonas um how did the the nazi do that exists now because I know you have the is a doe character and then you also have what's a, a amalgamation of a griffin a hummingbird and uh was a, a not a lemur a red panda a ring-tailed mongoose oh sorry ring-tailed mongoose yes yeah <laughs> yeah um it's funny my first persona ever was a lion oh, and that okay. lasted about three days <laughs> 
And then I went with polar bear, and that was because the uh, species name is Ursus maritimus, and Maritimes is where I'm from. Like the the eastern provinces are called the Maritimes in Canada. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, that was fun, and I had that for like three months or so. But then it just it didn't feel like a big bear character what? didn't feel very me. Was it also a polar bear uh, because you you are up north? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and then my like bird character, it came about after a long period of time. Like I, I was exposed to conventions early and I was like kind of still iffy on the fandom, honestly. Like mm -hmm. I liked it as a means to, uh, explore, but I just, it, it wasn't for me initially. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't really feel right with my character. So I was like kind of in and out of the fandom over the course of two years. I just was thinking more and more about like what I wanted to exemplify. And I saw all these Griffin characters online that were really unique and people kind of identified with them very quickly. Um, like, I don't know if you know who, um, I don't know what she goes by nowadays. She was like a, this white Griffin character with a red heart. Um, uh -huh. uh, but anyways, it was like the, for one of the first characters I'd ever seen and it just like was so unique to me. And so that's why I gravitated towards the bird and I chose something that was really unique and nobody would ever be able to like, tell what i was yeah that was uh, the hummingbird and the mongoose that yeah. was so cool i saw those little tail things i'm like what is that and then apparently it's it's taken actually from a real hummingbird and is that used for like um like affection or something not affection but like attracting a mate or something or how yeah do they yeah use exactly those? spatch yeah spatula so, um, hummingbird? the the males of the marvelous spatula tail hummingbird have these really long tail feathers and they um are able to like throw them around and spin them in a really kind of beautiful dance to the females. And if the females like the dance, then they'll uh, settle down with them. But yeah, they just kind of like, they use these tail feathers in a really fun, unique way. And I thought that would be a really cool thing to add oh. to the character because it's really indicative of that species. That's what I love so much about your channel and like what you tweet because you show these really interesting and like things that I've never seen in nature, like videos and I'm like, oh my god, that's so interesting. And then I want to learn more about that that species or like, you know, this new creature. Um, no, that's that's great to hear. I'm glad. That's what I'm. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and yeah, I can tell that that's definitely what you're what you're passionate about and want to share. And then I also get this kind of like, um, I don't know if you were aware of like SciShow or D News and stuff. And I I feel like it falls kind of in that same like realm of like those channels that I subscribe to too. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And I, I, growing up, I was always like, I had big inspirations from Steve Irwin and yeah. Bill okay. Nye, the science guy. <laughs> and so I wanted to do something like that when I, when I was older. And I'm glad like I've been able to do a little bit of that with the fandom. Yeah, and ooh, there are these, I'm just checking out on your Twitter right now too. There are these uh, gems that you found on the forest and they're the yeah. Christina, Christina yeah. Respledens. Resplendence? Yeah, Resplendence, um, yeah. And you just found those on the floor in your field research? Yeah, yeah. So that's a species from Costa Rica, um, South America. And it's it's actually a pretty common beetle. Like, you can find it pretty commonly um, on down logs in the tropics, uh, in the rainforest in Costa Rica. Pretty amazing. What, beautiful, beautiful. What makes them gold and, like, look so, like, iridescent or something? It's crazy. So there's quite a few beetle species that use that kind of metallic look mm -hmm. as a means of um, it's like to distract and um, 
confuse predators. It's very reflective. So they see themselves oh. and it's, it, it reflects the sun quite like heavily. So it can glare their eyes and that kind of thing. Oh. Um, particularly, there are a lot of snake species that are really susceptible and they're really sensitive to light. So it helps them avoid predators and that kind of thing. Oh, so it's like kind of like the glistening or the glinting that'll like shimmer and then maybe distract them or something or that's, deter them. That's an interesting yeah. passive defense. Wow, I, I just thought, wow, look at, I'm a human. That's so pretty to look at. Let me pick them up. <laughs> that's like, that's my intention, yeah. yeah. <laughs> an unintended consequence to <laughs> Humans, yeah, we'll throw a chain in the wrench. So um, I guess I'm going through all these like different species and doing all this field research, like is there ever a time like an interesting um, Field research that you went on, or like an interesting species that kind of enamored you for a while during throughout your experience in this field. Uh, like that's a hard question because I've done so much, and it just like it's hard to pick one. There's like probably one of my most memorable field research trips was to uh, Mount Katahdin in Maine. Um, we did this study of ant species along the elevational gradient of the mountain so we would hike up and down the mountain every day for this week-long period and it was probably the one of the most beautiful spots i've ever been to just being on top of this mountain um and just i don't know i've never been like hiking on mountains before <laughs> mm. this experience and just it was absolutely gorgeous and during that trip we found a bunch of really rare species that you can only find on the mountaintops. Um, And there was one new species to science too, actually on the top of the mountain that we were uh, looking for in particular. And uh, yeah, it was just absolutely gorgeous. And that was one of the really, the solidifying things for me about ants was just this experience. Cause even in the temperate region, even in places that get really cold, you have this amazing diversity of ants. Oh, so are there also species of just like this specific ant that you're looking for that's only on that mountain um, that you have to do research for or? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I have a whole bunch of different kinds of research uh, on the go. Mm -hmm. This was uh, just one of the side projects, but there are, I mean, with insects in general, there's such an incredible diversity that if you choose some hard to reach place, that is like obscure and not many people have like been there before, you're probably going to see a whole bunch of new species of insects. Um, I think people think that discovering new species is kind of this amazing and like unique experience, but honestly in insects, because there's not a lot of people that study them in general, Mm -hmm. it's pretty common to find new things. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry. Another question to that is, um, so like, cause for a general populace of us, we like look at an ant and it's like, oh, it's an ant. But like, what, what in that field like differentiates? Like, what slight subtle changes would you say is like, oh yeah, this is a new species of ant compared to like if somebody were to do a hike and see an ant, they'd be like, oh, it's just a you know a common ant or is, something. Like, yeah. what's a defining factor that Are, that differentiates that species from another? Is there something that you'll notice that maybe like to the trained eye, to the untrained eye, wouldn't see in like the the antis you're seeing, or yeah, how does that process go? So for insects, it can be really intense. Um, that this is a whole discipline of biology called systematics and taxonomy. Um, with insects, there are a lot of features that you can't see by the naked eye, and so you have to look underneath the microscope. Mm-hmm. You find key locations 
or unique habitats in the world. And then you collect all the things that you can and you bring them back to the lab and you look at them underneath the microscope. And when you look at specific features of that organism, you can tell them apart morphologically. Um, so just as an example with ants, one of the biggest characters that we use to differentiate broad groups of ants is the presence of something called a pedial. So if you've ever seen an ant, you've probably seen that they have like a waist. There's like a constriction between their yes. middle section and their yeah. end section. Okay, yes. Um, some ants have two pieces of that constriction, a pedial and a postpedial, and some ants only have one section of that constriction, um, so one segment. And oh. so that's one of the key features that diverges two broad families of ants. And when, you, when you're looking for like these features or these specific like different habitats, these are kind of like the, the clues that when you're doing like trying to discover something new or find the specific species, like you'll see like, oh, there's an anthill that's a specific height or something, or like maybe they'll have like a, a, a pile of leaves or something that they'll cut or something that's very unique to that species. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if we're looking for specific things that are known, we'll definitely do that. We'll be like, okay, we know that this species likes this habitat. It makes its nest out of these things. We'll find it here. Oh, um, okay. But for things that are unknown, like I say, we just go out in the woods in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> like the mountaintops that, of Mount Katahdin, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. We go to these unique habitats and just sample everything that we can. We know ants in general. They occupy the leaf litter, they make mounds, they're in the soil, some even nest in the canopy. We know these broad biological facts. And so we hone in and we sample those locations in a standard way and we'll hopefully find new things. And okay. yeah, I think I sort of uh, jumped the gun on this and actually like to back it up a bit, if you don't mind. Um, so field research itself, like as a general um topic like how could you explain field research like what is the process of that actually sure so field research is the process of a biologist that goes into the wilderness the wild of the world and tries to make um scientific conclusions about that particular place of the world but they do it in in the like ecosystem in the forest and wherever they are specifically so that's why it's called field research is we go out into the field okay and actually like so when when you're doing that and you are collecting these different notes and data on things that you know you explore and go along things along the way um you're not actually just set to find one specific goal because if you don't find the thing that you're searching for well then i guess the trip is sort of a bust right um, it depends. Uh, so that's kind of the process of um, hy like hypothesis creation and um, the research that goes into that. So just taking a step back in terms of science itself, we have the scientific method. The scientific method mm -hmm. is that we make observations about the world. Based on those observations, we make uh, broad guesses or hypothesis. Hypothesis. Hypothesize, sorry, yeah. <laughs> about what's going on in the system or what we're looking for. Uh -huh. And then we go out, we make a methodology for how to sample this system. And then we collect data. And then we come back to the lab. We uh, analyze that data and we draw conclusions from that. And then that process feeds back into the top because whatever conclusions you've drawn, they usually result in more questions to ask. And you should um, see a pattern in correlations with like something occurring over those conclusions, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so 
when we're doing field research, sometimes we're trying to hypothesize that, okay, we want to figure this thing about, out about the ecosystem. And so when we get into the field, we're sampling for something in particular. But as scientists, usually when we go out and we do that, mm -hmm. we find new things. So we'll be sampling in some way and we'll see something interesting and we'll make note of it or we'll collect it. And that can usually like branch out and result in more things. Mm. How, um, so when, when you have, I actually kind of wanted to talk about like something topical. And so like in this current climate though, with the pandemic, I know as the whole world is going through, how does that affect you as a researcher going out into nature, going out and exploring and gathering data and then continuing your science? It's impacted us quite a bit. Um, for my stuff specifically, this year I was supposed to be in the lab at the university. I had collected a whole bunch of ants and I was supposed to be in the lab doing experiments with them. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, the university is closed right now um, for like in-person stuff. So I can't be in my lab doing research for the safety of the public. And that's all good. But that means that all of my ants are now in my living room oh. and I can't continue my research. <laughs> How has that set up been for your, your living situation? It's been it's been interesting. We kind of had to transform our dinner table into a mock lab table. All of my ant colonies are on that table and I have to feed them every day and all this kind of stuff. So it definitely it's it's a change. Mm -hmm. But uh, at least there at least I can still keep my colonies for whenever I can get back into the lab. Right. And what is that? Um, so you've yeah, you've effectively just tried to transfer your work from the lab to at home in your lab now. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, have you even, have you even seen a lot of different, like, I'm surprised, like, the more that I look at somebody's interest and in stuff online or through YouTube, like, even collecting ants or um, people using, uh, what is your opinion, real quick, on people having ant farms? Is that something that's, like, like positive in your in your eyes for, like, the community of, of entomology? Or what is that? I think it's very, yeah, I think it's very positive, honestly. Like, the act of people could being comfortable and be getting excited about these organisms and then being willing to like bring them into their home and study them or just see what they do for themselves. That's, that's awesome to see. And I mean, I don't know if you know the YouTube channel Ants Canada. Sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Do what, what, what do they cover? Is that the one where, um, I think he had like fire ants or something and the fire ants got antsy and were planning an escape. And then he decided to make like, that might have been a different channel, but he ended up like making this kind of tube maze that kind of appeased oh, the yeah. ants so that they wouldn't try crawling out. Yeah, I think I saw yeah. it. Is that, is that the same channel? I'm sorry. No, yeah, that's exactly it. Oh, okay, so, cool. <laughs> okay. Ants Canada is kind of this amazing phenomenon where like that's cool. seven years ago, this guy, Mikey Bustos, created this channel just showcasing his ant farms at home, right? And okay. it slowly because of his narration style and he makes stories about the ants that he collects and stuff it just got more and more of a following and i was originally because he was originally from ontario canada where i'm doing my research and i've contacted him a couple of times um when he was just starting up and so i followed his account when it was like 100 subscribers and now it's oh, like gosh. over 3.5 million yeah it's at 3.69 million wow ants canada oh, nice <laughs> And oh, it's so funny. I had a recent okay because it's the summer. Actually, I saw a couple of people on Twitter tweeting uh, just as the summer started. Um, a lot of ants will start coming into homes. And recently, I had a big run in with um, these small ants that I, 
Yeah, like my mom calls them ghost ants. It's because you can yeah. barely see them with just your eye. Um, right. So you'll see these tiny little specks moving just just barely. And I was following this one trail from our kitchen and the kitchen to the hallway and then the hallway to one of our side rooms. And then it was going out the window and I was like, whoa, um, OK, what is this? So I was following the trail and then it led to just like this massive colony just outside of our house. Um and I, I gotta say, like, it is, like, t- from a non-bug lover in, like, my own home, um, yeah. it, it, I had to <laughs> poison them and whatnot. Um, yeah, yeah. How, would, would there be, like, humane ways to transfer an ant colony, or, or is there a way to, like, lure them away in some way? Or once they set up shop, they're here to stay? Well, so this is the problem with ants sometimes is, there is so many of them and you have this kind of central queen that controls like this huge colony of organisms um, that if you get them established in your home, it's really hard to get rid of them other than by just poisoning them. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you have that colony outside, like you were saying, the only way to relocate it would be to dig up the whole colony. And these things can be like kilometers in size. Like it's, they, they occupy a wide, wide area. So in those cases, like you'll have to get rid of them. And honestly, it's not going to hurt the ants Mm -hmm. at all. Like in terms of their populations in the species, ants are everywhere and they're super robust. There's not really any known species that are at risk right now. Mm -hmm. So um, taking care of them is totally okay from your from your home. There's not really, unfortunately, a humane way to do it unless you want to put a ridiculous amount of work in. <laughs> to if you if you somehow discover the queen, actually, will they just migrate towards where you take the queen? Yep, exactly. exactly. Oh, I, they, that's really good to know. Okay. Yeah. So ants function off of something called pheromones. Yeah. Um, it's these little chemicals that they smell, and that tells them to do certain things. It's their language. Um, and the queen produces a pheromone that tells the other ants to look after her. Um, so if you move the queen and they can still smell that pheromone, they'll move along with her to make sure that she's safe. Oh, they, would they bring her back or like, would she go back to the nest that she originally established? Or is it something that they would just reestablish to where she is? And just be like, no, okay, this is our new home kind of thing. Mm. That's a that's a good question. And unfortunately, they'll probably just bring her back, especially if it's relatively close. They'll just be like, what the hell are you doing? Get back here. <laughs> oh, <okay>. um, <laughs> yeah. So, so this... yeah, that's that's the unfortunate fact of it. And but if you do remove the queen, like just and reclo- relocate the queen herself, mm-hmm. um, the original colony will end up dying because there's no other oh. reproductives in the colony. There's nothing else to produce offspring. Um, so eventually that colony will just die. What is what is like the average turnover rate for like um, like the workers or the just typical like I guess just ants that's not the queen. So like how if, if the queen does die off, how long will that colony be able to live? Will they have to discover a new queen in that meantime or is that just it? Um, it depends on the species. So there are some species that can live quite a while as workers. One of the colonies that, of ants that I'm working with right now, the workers can live up to two years. Um, wow. <laughs> but most ants, most ants will only live like a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So if you take the queen away, they're just done. They'll like they'll Is... live out their lives for the next couple of weeks, but after that, they'll they'll be dead. So speaking of formo- uh, pheromones and stuff, is there like a certain range to it as like the first question? Or is it just kind of like... Um... 
was it like the game of messenger almost where it's just like oh yeah the queen they, set this pheromone and so they start emitting and like sending this chain message down almost it's a mix of both and honestly this is like one of the forefront questions of science and entomology right now mm. um so there is a chain link there are pheromones that every worker can produce and then um that's like food searching uh ants mm. will lay down pheromones on the trail that they walk and then if, if enough ants walk that trail and are continually finding food, then they'll just keep walking that trail. So that's the problem with like, if you get ants in your home, they've probably found a food source and they're just gonna keep coming back. And that pheromone trail gets more and more established. And they just know if I follow this trail, I'm gonna get food. So that's again, like that like trail of messenger or that game of messenger that just keeps going and keeps going. Oh, okay. Oh, so with, um like through your research and observation looking at different insects and like a wide variety of species over your academic career and personal life um like even for like honeybees or something and the way that like these different kinds of hive mind mentalities do they share a lot of those traits even among ants and different species that you've noticed uh, do you mean like just pheromone use or the way they behave and stuff yeah the general behavior and the way that most um i guess like is that a proper term, like, like hive mind, the way that they communicate and operate well, as like, oh, yeah. maybe colony based? Yeah, like yeah. I don't know. How so it's like it's kind of a really cool thing where it's a bit of both. Again, it's like there are certain behaviors that are maintained throughout most eusocial insects. So anything like termites, honeybees, wasps, ants. Most of them use things like pheromones to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, most of them have this general system where you have a queen and you have uh, the workers of the colony and they look after brood together and the queen is the reproductive unit. The workers are just there to look after her and make sure that the, the broader superorganism, quote unquote, uh, lives. Oh, but then there are like there are differences between different species. So there are some species of ants that use sound to communicate. There are some species of like bee that use dancing to communicate. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, there are species of ants that um, they like can only communicate ver pheromones. They don't even have eyes anymore. Um, there's just like, there's a crazy amount of variation between species uh, at a very particular level, but there are certain, certainly like broad trends. Yeah, I always find that like bugs have these weird superpowers. And the <laughs> like one of the coolest things that I saw recently was where I, I learned that bees or a colony sometimes when they have like an intruder they do this thing where they congregate i mean i don't know if oh I those so those ones are the and then, I remember they're the japanese honeybees so like so the japanese wasps the big giant yeah the wasp. killer hornets or something with yeah yeah um so with so that whole ordeal is that those wasps can only handle so many temperatures and because those honeybees have essentially evolved with them mm -hmm. the way the honeybees deal with it is they essentially like heat stroke the wasp. That was crazy. Yeah, they like microwave the <laughs> the poor hornet. And I was like, wow, nature's crazy. Yeah, so, but well, no, it's it's an amazing adaptation. They like they vibrate their wings um, in a ball around the murder hornet, and it creates like like you say a microwave in the middle of it. Yeah, and that just increases the temperature beyond what they can take. And the really cool thing about that is that the temperature that the bees can handle is like half a degree. Wait, what? Like, it's it's like half a degree like different from the really Merlin cool, hornet, so they yeah. have to control oh. that heat. 
so, so closely. So they're actually close to killing themselves while doing that. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, with with that, and I think this like goes into invasive species. So like, the reason why it's such a big deal here in America with like the news mm-hmm. with Pacific Northwest having the introduction of murder hornets is because our honey, like the honeybees in this side, our these species have an issue of not being able to handle those types of murder They're, They haven't hornets. adapted in that way. Yeah, that the mm-hmm. Japanese exactly. bees have. So the Japanese bees have it down. It's It's been through their generations, but our bees do not. So they Would, just get decimated, even though they try to, you know, one-on-one take them on, but they just can't. Would, so, like, um, Nazi, in, in your, like, experience dealing or observing this behavior, what would be an appropriate response for, like, in North America where we have this invasion, is it appropriate to take uh, those Japanese bees and then try to use them and implement them to protect the ones in North America? Or what's the what's the sort of thinking there? So, no, this this thought process has been, like, tried in so many different ways. Oh. Um, so in those cases, the best thing that you can do if you have an interaction or something is try to eliminate the population of the thing that's getting itself established. So you create some initiative locally to like fund people to just go out into the woods and try and find the colonies of this thing and kill it. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the only way that you're going to remove it from the ecosystem. If you end up remove or ad- adding something else that can take care of that original thing, like that thing you're introducing secondarily could then cause another issue, right? In the environment. In the case, yeah. In the case of the Japanese honeybee, it could outcompete native species of bees for resources, and it might turn that defensive mechanism as a weapon against other species. Oh, right? wow. So oh. you have this really tight balance in the ecosystem of if you add something, it's really about trying to remove it, because if you add something else, you're going to have issues. There's some great examples of island populations uh, where they've introdu- accidentally introduced something. And then they've introduced something else to get rid of it. The, like, <laughs> I think actually, uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, what was that? No, no, go ahead. Oh, but yeah, like, like just like you were talking about that exact example. Um, we're based in Hawaii, actually. So yeah. over here, I'm pretty sure we have the infamous uh, mongoose uh, pest problem, rodent problem. Yeah. And yeah. as you know, pro- probably that was um, used to implement to get rid of, I think, rats or. Yeah. I, I don't. It was. I think it was hist- a rat problem. I don't remember the history for. Hawaii well, in terms of invasive species. Yeah, well, the main thing that happened there was that the I think the mongooses only were nocturnal, while the rats were only at, like awake and in the, like active in the day. So they totally messed up when each creature would be awake and asleep. So we yeah. got two pests instead of just one killing the other. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so bad. Humans are so bad <laughs> at actually dealing with their own problems. And yeah. Um, yeah. But like you were saying, like, so you have to take in all like as a researcher, as a scientist, making these really drastic decisions that could change the course of the environment. You want to know, like, I guess, like all of the little uh, details and granular like studies about, OK, so if we're if we're moving anything that's not natural and you have to be very responsible about that. Um, yeah, 100 percent. In in what way has that um, been done, actually? where it's benefited a population or some environment that wasn't exposed to um, this new species. Are you aware of any of those cases? Where So are you asking whether there's a case where they've been able to remove something successfully or like add something in that was actually positive? 
Um, yeah, a little bit of both. So, I mean, it, it could be as specific as, like, yeah, removing a pest or something or actually, like, implementing something that, like, boosted that environment in a positive way. Whether it yeah, be... Yeah, so there are, there are a couple of cases. Um, there is a case of the giant cane toad got it, getting introduced in Australia, and it was going to be introduced in New Zealand, but they put a really strict ban on anything getting across the border. And it like it's made its way a couple of times via like even natural means sometimes because it's in Australia now, but the people have effectively called the population and gotten rid of it. So it never established itself. That's one case oh, where we wow. learned from our mistakes in Australia and just like dealt with it. Okay. Um, th there are cases where we've successfully used other insects. Well, just like as an insect to control other populations of insects where it's not an issue in the environment. Um, you have this really cool uh, group of organisms in the wasps, bees, and ants, the Hymenoptera, um, that are called parasitoid wasps. Oh. They're wasps that lay eggs inside other organisms, and the babies eat them from the inside out, and they end up killing them. It's exactly alien. It's just alien. <laughs> they burst through the abdomen of the insect. Yeah, oh, exactly. Brutal. Oh my gosh. Um, but because parasitoid wasps are specific, like they will only parasitize one species of insect. Oh, there's no issue bringing them to new locations. As long as you're sure that they take care of the thing that you want and nothing else, like there's no problem bringing them to a place because once that population of the invasive pest that you're trying to get rid of is gone, they'll disappear as well. They will. Oh, okay. That makes total sense. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Um, the are there any um so like blarg and i actually recently this past year we went to a wolf sanctuary and like that was yeah was it, huh what was it last year it might have been early last yeah when or late last uh, pre yeah pre-pandemic yeah. we should say that yeah <laughs> when we can travel um <laughs> and it was my first time ever going it was our first time ever going to a wolf sanctuary and by proxy they also had a bunch of other exotic animals that sadly were um, their caretakers were like really into their professions and careers. So then they got these really cool animals that were like lynxes or bengals and stuff like that. And sadly they can't take care of them and they don't have the right, um, tools to, so they give them to the sanctuary. And it was a really eye opening experience too, to also learn about these wolves in the environment and just get a deeper look into the way that the nature has its balance. So like the, like a quick wolf fact, uh, that I learned was like wolves are were essentially the janitors of the forest so a lot of the things that rely on wolves like maintaining populations and whatnot um were really severe when uh you know people started hunting them more out of their environments and then humans came more into the foray so you found out not only like there was this video that showed this trickle down effect of where um, okay, so you don't have these populations being reduced, so then more fauna are eating at, like, more of the vegetation, and then the vegetation itself isn't there to keep some of the earth together, and then the earth physically changes and erodes away because of just, like, one butterfly effect thing. And yeah, they, that was a super eye-opening and illuminating experience mm -hmm. that I think I'll take with me forever. Um, and are there, are there, like, insect equivalents of, like, sanctuaries? Or, I don't know, I'm just kind of curious. So, and that's the kind of sad thing is insects, they're so diverse and so abundant um, that you'd think that we would have realized by now to do the same thing that we do with charismatic big animals as mm -hmm. we do. Yeah. 
to with them as well but no there's there are initiatives to restore some species so things that draw people's attention like butterflies and uh, bees they often get uh, attention for conservation efforts but most other things because there's just so many things to study and not enough people um, there we just don't know what's happening to them right um, there was a really interesting and eye-opening paper that came out I think three years ago now um, about the fact that over the past 20 years in Germany the insect population a total abundance of all insects has decreased at least 70 percent what wait over 20 years yeah oh my gosh yeah what? and these are things that these are statistics and facts that people don't realize because there's not enough people studying them so we don't know about the populations of the small things in the world and is that's oh that's super mind-blowing because okay like correct me if i'm wrong but is it also true that because well outside of north america that i'm familiar with in the united states we don't eat bugs typically yeah. but majority of the world does is that is that true that's 100 percent correct and we just lost 70 percent oh wow and that 70 percent that's just general abundance of things these are things that people don't really know how to identify the species because nobody works on them so you have this huge biomass of things and within that biomass there are probably species that we never discovered and now never will well yeah that's really sad it, and and this is where it's cool that i think it's a really uh good uh leaping point here because now um we have more people focusing on vr and how have you seen that as a useful tool for education and spreading awareness in this way oh it's it's such an amazing thing honestly like it's incredible that it's so open source right now and there's so many people able to add to it because we've seen myself and Dr. Wildlife, um, who's another biologist in the fandom, we've seen people create worlds that are aquariums and zoos and that they are passionate about animals and are using their means of art to support that. So uh, Dr. Wildlife especially has made some really great videos on how to properly like approach animals and touch pools and stuff like that. Um, so we can use these as means to say that this is something that either exists or did exist. And isn't it beautiful, but we can't find this in the world anymore. And what mm -hmm. does that mean for our experience? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And were there things now that like, uh, you mentioned the touch pools and stuff. So these are like little interactive, like, uh, like displays and stuff like you would see at the zoo or the aquarium. Um, mm -hmm. but just now in the virtual space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a means for people that don't have access to zoos and museums to, uh, see what that experience is like. And that's a really profound and amazing thing because zoos and aquariums are often what drive people into biology. They get people inspired because you get to see the amazing things of the world up close. Yeah. Oh man. And <laughs> I'm just thinking also about, um, RV, uh, as, yeah, as we get more into the quarantining phase two, we're exploring more and more, um, me and Blarg, uh, about, like, VR and stuff and hanging out. And it's it's ultimately been more of a social thing than, sadly, an educational tool for us. Um, but we hang out and play games a lot. Um, and at the same time, it's just utilizing those tools and, like, expanding it and pushing yeah. towards that and showing. Because, like, if you don't show people, like, where the resources are, then people are not going to know that it exists. And so pushing out that message is like hey these you want to go see like because i think some of the zoos even 
were like, oh yeah, you want to take a virtual tour? And you can take a virtual tour of the zoos and stuff like that and actually still see and learn about stuff. So mm. they've, still trying, they've been finding ways to like, even with the quarantine, nobody actually being able to physically be there and actually learn. You recently went to the zoo actually, right? Yeah. On, uh, on a so recent trip actually, during quarantine and sort of these closures. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, there's a limited population that they let in for the zoos and stuff, but you can still see all these animals and stuff, and they still take the time to take care of them, which is really good because they <laughs> they do need the attention. How how have they sort of been uh, mitigating to like let people know like what what their process was for you know like letting you go in the zoo? What precautions do they take now? It's been a while for me personally. <laughs> I mean, it, it just varies from zoo to zoo. But, like, for us in America, they just follow majority guidelines of the CDC and limit how much population get in there. Okay. But um, I guess I have a question for you, because this is kind of interesting, because we research this, like, with animals and stuff like that, like, say, with cows. And um, I think COVID being kind of between species, if I remember correctly. But for, like, insects and stuff like that, is there diseases that we experience as animals and as humans that... Um, insects have too for like one I can think of is like the um the fungus that infects ants and turns them into essentially retro zombies oh the cordyceps fungi yeah is there is there other diseases that gets researched on especially for like I guess insects or interspecies things interspecies related diseases is that what not really interspecies but like just disease like disease study in general for these creatures oh okay yeah so there is a lot of research that goes into disease vectoring is what it's called. Um, there are quite a few insects that are disease vectors. So, I mean, the biggest example is mosquitoes with West Nile and uh, yellow fever and that kind of thing. So there are certainly things that insects can give us. Um, when things impact insects on a like biological level, so from their brain, their neurons, their physiology, uh, they typically won't impact us. Um, so thing, like the example of the cordyceps fungi, it would be virtually impossible for that to translate into humans um, because our, just, our physiology is so different from insects that the, things that affect them won't affect us. Okay. Insects are usually a vector that means that they carry the thing, but they never get sick themselves from that thing. We would be the ones to get sick from it. Is there oh. anything like particularly unique with those insects as to like a potentially a reason why they they don't normally get sick by certain like I guess what I'm saying is like would you know as as much diseases as there are for like all us uh, larger animals and stuff like that, is there the kind of a reason why there's only like a limited amount for insects? Um, I think there is a huge variation and amount of diseases for insects. It's just nobody studies them because okay. why would you study yeah. diseases in insects when that doesn't have any application to the human world? It's interesting to me, and I think it's valuable to study, but not many people will do that. <laughs> yeah. So I think there is a lot of insect diseases, but just not many people are studying them. Okay. See, we have to bring more awareness because we need more memes like stick bug. Have you gotten yeah. stick bugged yet? Uh, every day, every day since that meme has gone out, somebody has sent me a video of being stick bugged, and every time, I love it. I know it's the best Rickroll of 2020 now. It's like the yeah, it's the new Rickroll. It's just it's all it's it is like, is just cockroach. 
But yeah, memes are another really good outlet for like spreading awareness now about like different types of bugs or animals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that this all goes into like the science communication and that's the talk that Dr. Wildlife and I did this morning at a science conference was about how we get people invested in science through our hobbies and our personal lives. Like we do the whole stuff with the fandom and mm -hmm. we get messages every day from people that are like I never would have been interested in insects or science, but because I saw your content because you're a furry, like I'm now interested. Um, <laughs> and that's just that's just amazing to us. We love that. And we want to share that you can bring science more personally and it can get engage more people. Actually, yeah. Do you want to unpack that a little bit about your experience with like having your fursuit and then um, actually taking it into like school and whatnot to help teach people and get people uh, hyped and interested? Yeah, sure. Um, so I like it's kind of funny. I was never that into fursuiting when I was getting into the fandom. Um, but then I saw uh, who was it? There was I, I forget the name of the suitor now. There was somebody I saw on YouTube that um, was just doing some kind of educational bit on um, ASL, so like sign language for mm. um, like fursuiters and that kind of thing. And it just inspired in me like, wow, you can do education through this platform and people will uptake it so well. Um, and so that's what sparked my interest in getting a fursuit. And I got my fursuit, and that's when I got into video making and doing the science communication. And I always wanted to kind of keep it in the fandom. I never really intended to breach the fandom stuff that I did with mm -hmm. the actual professional stuff that I did. But last year, I ended up um, like applying to the science communication course. It was limited to like 20 people and it was mostly intended for professors and people that owned zoos and science centers. Mm -hmm. So I never thought I would get in, but just as like a one-off, I threw my furry stuff in it and I was like, <laughs> never getting into this thing, but like, here you go. I'm a scientist and I'm a furry, like have at it. What? But they loved that. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, they like, they saw that and they're like, that's so unique. Like come on in and learn with us and help like and teach us honestly so i went on that and i like had an amazing time and then through that experience because it was with a bunch of professionals and like big science names in canada mm -hmm. like i was working with the discovery channel and animal planet on this course oh what um, was that about it, well, so it was the science communication course that was hosted by a science center in alberta canada mm -hmm. and a bunch of big hosts of TV shows on um, Animal Planet. Uh, one of the big ones is uh, Jay Ingram. He hosted um, this show called Daily Planet on Discovery Channel. Um, so he was connected with a lot of people like in the science community and was posting about like all the attendees, myself included, and the fact that I brought my fursuit. And my department saw those tweets mm -hmm. and they ended up reaching out and it was like, this is really cool that you went and did this on your personal time. Cause this is stuff that was just like, I did not connect with it at the university cause I wanted to keep it separate. Like I say, um, but then they saw it and they were like, this is cool. Let's support this. And then they invited me to give this talk at the university in my first suit at Halloween. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's really, awesome. That's, yeah. That's wonderful. Halloween. Yeah. Man. And it was, it was amazing. Like the students loved it. They were like, 
Everybody else was dressed up in the audience as well. Um, I was talking about how to do science communication and how to talk about science with people and the fact that it's okay to engage like your hobbies and your personal life with this stuff. Um, and yeah, everybody just received it so well. I got a whole bunch of emails afterwards. I was like, do this again, do this again. <laughs> so in the future, I guess like, yeah, definitely you're going to, or you're going to have uh, Nazi. Is that, is that the right character, right? Uh, yeah, Nazi at more uh, conferences and talks. Oh, that sounds so cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, the so I guess like um coming back to like today. Um, do you have uh, any uh, current projects? Like, I suppose yeah, you did mention you have your ant uh, research currently all stationed in your home lab. Yeah, yeah, uh, I do have that on the go. Um, I also am doing some research for Harvard. Um, there's a professor there that was supposed to come up and do ant research in Canada, but because the borders closed, he couldn't do it. So I went and I collected all the ants that he wants for his research. Um, they're all in my living room right now. So I have like 200 colonies of ants that I'm going to ship to him. So that's one thing going on. And then I'm always doing diversity work and, um, collecting ants from my home provinces and reporting on that. Oh, okay. So I guess, yeah, you'll be uh, occupied with that for the meantime. Um, <laughs> um, so I guess if if there's people that want to, like, I guess, look more into this field or support it, is there any sort of um, avenues or support sources to, like, further go into this topic? Yeah, what would you recommend to people? Um, just, like, again, like, maybe from a young age, too, for a young audience getting into... Uh, this type of research and entomology in general or just nature and what are some uh, good so uh, sources you would recommend? Honestly, it's just about showing people that you're passionate about it and interested about it. Um, like social media these days is one of the best resources. You can post about the things that you're seeing in the world. You can engage with people that you have as heroes on a daily basis, like just at them in your tweets and there's a chance that they see them and that can open opportunities for you. Um, the way that I got into my field and how I started was uh, I brought my field research notes that I did like in high school. I just kept a journal of all the insects that I saw and I took photos of them and I tried to draw them and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I brought that to school one day and my biology teacher saw it and was like, this is awesome. Like you're you're already doing what the museum is doing. Let me introduce you to the curator of zoology. And that's how I got my job there. And that really sparked my entire science career from and, that job at the museum working with insects. And that's so cool uh, to hear because like, again, if you're just naturally and innately passionate about this thing, you're going to gravitate and then find people attracted to similar things and subjects. Exactly. And the amazing thing about showcasing your passion and like getting involved is these communities of people, especially in science, they are a very small community. Like there are not many entomologists in the world. There are not many people that want to get down and dirty with insects. So if you showcase that passion, all of us that are passionate about it, that want to see others succeed, will reach out and will help you along the way. Like, honestly, if there's anybody listening, like just send me a DM, DM. I get DMs every day from people that are like, I'm in high school right now and I like insects. What are the avenues for me to take? Mm -hmm. And I'll just send you a email or a DM and be like, oh, these are all the universities near you. Here are some pro professors that I know. I can send you uh, an email to them. 
like say, hey, this is this person they're interested in entomology near you. You should let them into your lab. Like I do that sometimes. Oh yeah, I, um, I think I'm good. There was that. Yeah, that's no better way to end it. Yeah, <laughs> that was really awesome. No, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your time to talk about this interest specifically and like your whole background and how you even got into the fandom and just your research in general. That's really enlightening. Um, <laughs> are there uh, anything, last things that you'd like to plug or share with people? Uh, sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Entobird if you're interested. Uh, I do YouTube content under Entobird as well. And I do Twitch streams uh, about science on Entobird uh, on Twitch as well. Just like if you're interested in science, if you like uh, biology, like shoot me a follow. <laughs> I'll go check out Nazido at Entobird on Twitter. He's a bug nerd and bird. Thank you, Nazi. No problem at all. Thank you for having me on. Yay. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, man, I learned a lot. It <laughs> <laughs> oh. was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun, too. Oh, that was awesome. Okay, well, uh, yeah, thanks for, like, again, I just can't thank you enough for um, helping uh, me get back on the saddle with these interviews, too, because it's been a while for me, considering every, all the hecticness going on. And... Oh, I know. Like, Dr. Wildlife and I have a podcast, and we, we've got to get back on it. It's been tough. <laughs> Oh, yeah. oh, um, should plug the podcast too. Do you want to share that? Or is that through your YouTube or something? I could put a link in the description. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, podcast is called Phyla and Fandom. You can find it on Twitter and on Spotify under Phyla and Fandom. Um, we don't have too many episodes out right now, but we're sl we slowly add to them. And like, we have interviews with people in the fandom or scientists, and we just talk about hobbies, fandom, uh, subcultures and science. Okay. Nice. Oh, Nazi, could you send me that link sometime? Anytime you can. And then, yeah, I'll post that below. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. I wish you I wish you the best for your, your PhD. That's yeah, really yeah. Cool, Dr. Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so Thank cool. You so much. We're talking to a real scientist. That's, yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> and honestly, anytime, like, just hit me up. I'm, I'm down for collaborations with fandom people. Like, this has been really fun. Oh, thank you. Okay, take care, Nazi. You too. Bye-bye. And a huge shout out to the Patreon supporters, the monthly Barkers, starting with Archon Inu, Artorius Nightwalker, Barky, Ben Campbell, Bryce, Damon, Damian Adams, Ella Ryra, Ferris, Hattie, Howler, Jack Scott, Jason, Jay Wolf, Kanok82562, Lo-Fi, Mercury, Michael Draws, Ricks, Road Wolf, The Pie Man 78, Tyler DeRosier, and Yoru Pandawolf. Thank you so much, guys, for helping make this possible and supporting all of my projects. I really appreciate it and can't thank you enough. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and FA at Shikokubo. If you'd like to help support the podcast and future projects, you can check out my Patreon at Shikokubo. That's S H I K O K U B O. Take care.